Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. I am your host, Bonnie Lee, and this is Writing About Crime. Today, we will be talking about Carla Homolka, so please don't leave me. On April 30th of 1992, Kristen is found unclothed in a ditch along a rural road in the north end of Burlington, Ontario, and remarkably, her hair is cut off. It was Roger Boyer who discovered her while driving his truck out to look for scrap metal. He pulled over to inspect what he thought was a pink rolled up carpet but turned out to be a person left naked and deceased, about 12 feet from the road. He drove to the closest farm and called police. He claimed he was not immediately cleared as a suspect, and even after having given prints made of his footwear and tire treads, police continued to periodically question him about the finding for over half a year. Later, it is discovered that the Bernardos washed her hair before cutting and discarding it. Her face was badly battered and Kristen French is quickly identified by an old rowing injury that left her missing the tip of her left pinky finger and a piece of dental wear in her mouth. The investigators are now functioning under the belief that this and Leslie's murder are related Kristen's parents are notified and they're in such shock that her mother Donna says that her dad aged almost in the moment, saying, what I saw was an old man. It was devastating that she had been so close to home, yet there was nothing they could do to help her. The local church organized Kristen's service and the community covered the costs. The family wanted the event to be special and nearly 3,000 people attended. Even the media was there for the service, which the family didn't appreciate. As time progressed, the media became more aggressive in trying to get the story, and some had a more sensational angle that upset the family. It felt like the respect was all but gone when some outlets began to report leaked information. The family was concerned that they would hurt the investigation. And it's around this time that Van Smyrnas is struck by the similarities between Paul and the rapist's profile. He also notes that the rape seemed to slow down when Paul moved to St. Catharines. He knows the police need to be told about this lurking suspicion. He's haunted by a memory of when he and Paul vacationed for his bachelor celebration. Paul had made odd comments about attractive girls on the beach that were unsettling, like, wouldn't you like to abduct her and rape her? He also had brought a girl up to the hotel room for sex, and when she scratched him with her fingernails in a moment of passion, he lost his mind. He yelled and swore at her, totally overreacting to the minor scratches, and immediately kicked her out. He went from celebrational and the big party guy to crazy in such a small time frame and over such a minor thing, it left Van unsettled. Now, seeing things from a distance, 
he knew something was up with his friend, Paul Bernardo. Less than two weeks later, on May 12th of 1992, police attend to Paul and Carla's home to question Paul in the investigation. Paul is now on the radar for the murder of Kristen French. He's calm and collected while questioned and doesn't raise any immediate flags. He gains confidence as time passes that he has eluded the investigation. And later, the following June, Carla attempts to leave Paul and calls her parents to bring their van so she can take some belongings. When they arrive, Carla is crying and upset, while Paul, apparently drunk and defiant, is yelling and swearing. They start loading up Carla's things, but Paul asks Carla to please come inside so he can talk with her. She feels a threat of exposure when he threatens to reveal her involvement in the murders. She believes Paul when he tells her he will show the video they made the night of Tammy's death to her family. Carla comes out to the van and tells her mom and dad that her and Paul are going to settle things and decides she will not leave him. After they're gone, she is of course beaten. Time passes and it appears to them that things are cooling down slightly. It won't last long though, because Paul's government checks have now run out and he's drinking himself drunk daily while staying up all night making his rap music. The couple soon initiates a solicitation to change their names, claiming Bernardo is too ethnic and Italian sounding. They settle on Teal as their legal name. They choose it in homage to the serial killer character in the 1988 film Criminal Law. The couple continues to role play for the camera regularly as Carla plays a character of one of their victims to seduce Paul. He would enhance the experience by watching tapes from his collection during their playtime. If Carla was struggling with this, you would never know from her behavior on the tapes. The name change won't distance them from their conscience or perhaps just paranoia because Carla begins to hear unexplained noises in the home. She's convinced the house is haunted. She hears Paul calling her name and he's adamant that he had not. They both began to hear banging coming from their basement. Carla goes to Lori, a local psychic for advice, and she suggests pouring ammonia in the drains and flushing it through the plumbing while chanting for the spirits to leave their home. Carla was not fully sold on the idea but convinced Paul to try, and for a short time, it seemed that the harassment haunting had simmered. Only later, the sounds and voices returned to haunt the pair. Perhaps related, or maybe not, Paul does at one point take an overdose of pills in an attempted suicide. Carla later argued that she got him help and didn't leave him to die because she's not the killing type but Paul was now hounding Carla to go with him to find another girl. She's pushing back and doesn't want to go through with another abduction and possibly murder. But Paul is losing patience with her and the abuse is getting worse. He breaks her down with cruel treatment, one time even throwing her down the stairs into the basement and leaving her in the dark. As she yells out in pain from the fall, he taunts her saying, Leslie is coming for you. She's down there where I cut her up. 
anything will trip him to beat her, and his fuse is blowing all the time. Carla is struggling to keep it together, and something is going to break soon. December of 1992, the Center of Forensic Sciences finally is prompted to test the DNA samples that were collected from Bernardo in 1990 when he was questioned about the Scarborough rapes. That same month, just before the holidays, the girl known as Jane Doe has a dispute with Carla and Paul about her feeling forced into having sex with Paul. She liked Paul in the early days of the friendship, writing in a note to congratulate the newlyweds, you guys are the perfect couple. I hope someday I can meet a guy like Paul, a good-looking, sweet, and caring person. But Jane began spending almost every second weekend with the Bernardos, hanging out and watching movies. Her mother was uneasy, with the older married couple being so close with her daughter, and she would later testify, I could not imagine why a married couple would be interested in a single person five or six years younger than themselves. Where were their friends? She wasn't aware then that Paul had begun pressuring the young girl for sex. She had refused because she was a virgin and he was married. Paul would make her promise that he would be her first and manipulate her into performing oral sex on him multiple times. She said she agreed because he told her that if she didn't keep him happy, Carla wouldn't be happy and she wanted to keep Carla happy. Paul would buy the 15-year-old girl gifts. And later, he and Carla would have Jane and her mother over for dinner. Paul wanted to let her mother know that he and Carla had reasons for wanting her daughter and Carla to be close friends. Carla had recently begun removing many friends from her life because they were not good enough. Carla wanted to develop friendships with people that were good people, and Jane was dear to her. Her mother had reservations and told Paul to stop buying her gifts. They had money to buy whatever she needed. Paul told her he enjoyed giving gifts to all of his girlfriends. She didn't trust him. She became irate when later Jane's riding instructor confided to her that her daughter made concerning comments about her relationship with the couple. When her mother confronted her, she admitted only to Paul touching her breasts. Jane's mother had confronted Paul by leaving work at her lunch break to see him. She told her co-workers where she would be, and when she arrived, she kept her keys clutched between her fingers for safety. He argued that he would never do that to a young girl who was a friend of his wife. And as she drove out of the yard, Paul yelled at her from the top of his lungs. I would have no reason to, and it made her uneasy. Paul called Jane later that day, and scolded her for not telling her mother that all of it was her idea. Jane's mother would end up allowing her to visit her friend Carla occasionally, but didn't agree with it. She would insist that she drive Jane there and pick her up whenever she visited the couple. However, Jane had continued to idolize Carla and saw her as a surrogate sister. She would sometimes have to sneak around to be able to visit the older couple. Jane tells Carla that she's upset with Paul's unrelenting pressure and she had met her limit when he told her she was worthless and didn't deserve to live. He had gotten angry and threw a photo of her on the ground and made Carla go upstairs to the bedroom. Jane contacted her mother to pick her up 
and while she waited for 45 minutes for her mother to arrive, Paul stood at the top of the stairs staring down at her. It made Carla very nervous about bringing extra attention to Paul, and so it was the last time that Jane Doe will have anything to do with the couple. In late December of 1992, Paul beats Carla severely with a flashlight. She has severe black eyes and markings all over her arms and legs. She still goes to work on January the 4th and explains her injuries away as the result of a car accident. No one believes her and coworkers contact Carla's parents. On the advice of her coworkers, mother and her sister, she leaves Paul and she decides to be treated at the St. Catherine's General Hospital. She's encouraged to file charges against Paul and she's photographed with brutal bruising around both of her eyes. The photos are shocking. The blow to the back of her head was so severe that it caused both of her eyes to turn black and bruise. In the full body photos taken, it is noted that Carla is wearing a Mickey Mouse watch Early on in the investigation, it's believed that the watch belonged to Kristen French. It was missing when they recovered her body. And when Carla is asked about it later in interviews, she goes white and loses composure. It must have just rattled her because later, it is claimed that the watch was broken and burned in the fireplace. She's discharged after four days and decides to stay with an aunt and uncle in the Brampton area so she's safe. Carla's physician contacts the police after being so alarmed at the beating that Carla presented with, saying it was one of the worst he had ever seen. It's reported that she confided into her aunt and uncle, Paul was the Scarborough rapist, and that he was responsible for the French and Mahaffey murders. While Carla masks the murders from her mind by hitting the clubs and even dating an unsuspecting suitor. Paul is arrested and charged with assault with a weapon and is fingerprinted and photographed by the Niagara police. He's released on bail the next day and a court date is set. The assault charge pressed on behalf of Carla becomes known to the Toronto police and that gets them interested in looking into Paul for the Scarborough rapes. They come to Carla and try to get any information they can on Paul and his possible involvement. She is rattled. When the police are contacting her and looking into their lives, it's only a matter of time before things unravel. She needs to go into offense mode or she knows she will go down with Paul for the murders. Paul is upset that in his view, Carla involved the police. He calls multiple times to reach her, almost always crying or angry. He tries to get her father, Carl, to tell him where she is and even shows up at her mother and her sister's work to intimidate them into telling him where he can locate her. When Carla left Paul, she had also gone to her friend, Patty Sager, who commented that Carla couldn't walk properly and had bruises all over her legs and arms, as well as her face and the back of her head. Patty felt terribly for Carla and how serious her injuries were, but also noted that Carla was a natural actress who could turn her emotions on and off in a moment. She could go from laughing and excited to crying and hysterical at the drop of a hat, saying she fooled a lot of people. 
It seemed, however, that Carla was badly hurt as even her uncle Calvin told the media that her injuries were alarming. Not only the black eyes, but her entire 110 pound body was yellowish brown to greenish blue all over. Carla is now gone for good and will not return to the couple's home in Port Dalhousie. It takes a month, but Paul Bernardo's DNA is finally matched with the samples related to the Scarborough rapist. And the Center for Forensic Sciences cautions the Toronto Metro Police. His phone is tapped and Paul is put under surveillance 24 hours a day. February 5th to the 13th of 1993, not only is Paul's father convicted on sex-related charges in Scarborough, but Carla is now communicating with the Toronto Sexual Assault Task Force. They visit her at her aunt and uncle's apartment, and in the beginning stages, she wasn't cooperative. They grill her for up to five hours about Paul, and they push for details. At one point, even asking her where Paul had his hair cut or if they had a barber set at home. They press her about Paul possibly being responsible for the multitude of rapes that occurred in Scarborough. And at one point, the worst she divulged about Paul was that he was a cigarette smuggler. Although she did disclose to her aunt and uncle that Paul was blackmailing her and referred to a videotape. With the advance insight, at this point, only considered a victim of Paul's, Carla obtains a lawyer. And accompanied by her lawyer, George Walker, she and her aunt reveal that Paul is a Scarborough rapist and asserts that he's responsible for the murders of French and Mahaffey. She tells them Paul forced her to help him through the entire process. Her lawyer will go on to request that she be granted full immunity to disclose the details for the investigation. And in return, she will plead guilty to manslaughter charges in both murders, reveal all details that she knows, and testify against Paul at his trial. Her lawyer suggests that she serve five years for each charge. The request is denied almost immediately. They will be singing a different tune when they gather the facts of evidence and prepare to charge Paul. On February 16th of 1993, one of the recorded Jane Doe's are interviewed by officers, hoping that she can provide details and be a witness in the case against Paul Bernardo. The next day, Paul is arrested. He's interrogated for over eight hours and he requests a lawyer several times during questioning. And it's later determined that because he was not provided one, his charter rights have been violated. None of the conversation is admissible at his trial. On February 19th of 1993, police began a 71-day search of the Bernardo's home in St. Catharines. They're joined by Inspector Vince Beaven, who's in charge of the investigation. As they execute their search warrant, they rip through the entire home. They dismantle several walls and even do some digging in the ground of the foundation of the building, where they suspect that Paul Bernardo had dismembered one of his victims. They gather as much evidence as they can, finding handcuffs, a hunting knife, a list of victims in the Scarborough rapes, books that present deviant sex, and a videotape that contains images of Paul and Carla, both having sex with one and possibly two different young girls that they could not yet identify. One of them is assaulting Jane Doe. Unfortunately, they don't locate the videotapes that were hidden in the bathroom above a light fixture. 
the recorded evidence of the rest of Carla and Paul's crimes. On February 24th, Carla is arrested and her sentence is reduced. Her trial is set for June 28th, and the next day, her request for a divorce from Paul is granted. On March 5th, 1993, Carla Homolka is admitted to Northwestern General Hospital, and Dr. Hans Arndt is to complete a psychiatric assessment. The assessment is so involved that she remains in hospital, meeting with the physician until April 23rd. While there for the assessment, she writes her family a letter taking responsibility for Tammy's death. She claims to hate herself for lying and that they may hate her, but both her and Paul are responsible for her death. She describes her abuse and that Paul was controlling her. And although the death was accidental and she tried to help Tammy, she now was so full of guilt that she'd considered ending her life. She decided against it claiming she didn't want to put her loving family through the death of another daughter. She claims she stayed with Paul and allowed the abuse to continue because she felt she deserved it. She goes on to close the letter saying she never wanted anything to happen to her Tamikins and that she didn't expect forgiveness because she can't forgive herself. The letter reads like a preemptive strike before they find out the details and Carla knows that that will eventually happen. In the meantime, Paul's father is put in jail for nine months with three months of probation for his sexual assault conviction. And then that April, Carla finds herself living with her uncle Calvin and her aunt Patricia. They disclose Carla's confessions about Paul and Carla's crimes as it falls under the hearsay category. It does, however, open up Carla for murder charges just as Carla manifested, a deal will be pushed whereby she will be the prime witness in the case against Paul while securing herself from being pulled into that vortex. The warrants for the case are on the verge of expiring and the investigators don't have the evidence they need to lay charges against Paul. On May 6th of 1993, Paul Bernardo's lawyer, Ken Murray, enters the Bernardo's home. Under the direction of his client, he retrieves the six eight millimeter hidden videotapes. He secures them for his client and doesn't disclose that he has them in his possession. Of course, this is highly illegal and unethical. By May of 1993, Carla Homoka and the prosecutors handling her charges have come to an agreement with her lawyer. Seemingly strong-armed into reaching some arrangement as the stretch of the home and the rest of the investigation has yielded nothing that could be used in court to definitively prove Paul's involvement in the murders. Carla's statement is the strongest evidence they have. The attorney general has not agreed to full immunity, but is considering a reduced sentence for her part in the crimes. By mid-month, she gives lengthy, detailed statements to investigators, and the so-called deal with the devil is finalized. Carla will be the Crown's witness against her husband in his trial. Over four days in mid-May, she'll meet in a hotel in Oshawa rather than in an interrogation room and give her caution statements to investigators. She speaks in a juvenile voice and wears junior-style clothing. On one day, even wearing a little schoolgirl's outfit, 
complete with a short pleated skirt as she describes her entrapment in a battered wife's marriage and how she's forced into participating with Paul Bernardo as he commits his crimes. Admitting that one girl was drugged and once conscious believed she had been assaulted but was unable to recall the events that occurred while she was incapacitated. Yet Carla claims to have been living in terror seeing she sometimes sat in the middle of the floor while Paul stalked her in circles and she was blindfolded, only to kick her occasionally to keep her attention and terrorize her. Carla blames Paul for her sister's death and details the events around the murders of Leslie and Kristen, admitting she helped lure Leslie to their vehicle. She outlines how the girls were both made into sex slaves for Paul and that he in fact strangled them each to death. She tells of Paul bragging to her that his victims are at minimum 30 women, while detailing her abuse and the kidnapping, rape, and eventually murder, she runs off on tangents about her anger that Paul used crystal champagne flutes given as an anniversary gift to serve Kristen French an alcoholic drink. When she returned home from work, knowing that Paul had been at home with a kidnapped girl and assaulting her blindfolded. Her concern went to the crystal that she said was from France, which we never used. On May 18th, she's arrested on two charges of manslaughter. She appears in court and waives her right to a preliminary hearing. It's decided that she will be committed for trial. Carla is released on bail and is seen going to bars in Burlington, partying and looking for hookups. By May 19th, Paul is finally charged in the murders, two counts each of first-degree murder, kidnapping, forcible confinement, and aggravated sexual assault, and one count of committing an indignity to a body. On June 17th of 1993, Carla attends 57 Bayview Drive and walks investigators through the home, which has been virtually gutted by this time. She speaks in an odd tone, sounding almost childlike, and is again dressed in a little schoolgirl's outfit. She seems eerily focused on what would seem to be of not a great significance considering the situation. She inquires about damage to the furniture during the search, asks if her perfume samples were removed by Paul's lawyer as she shows investigators where Kristen French was cleaned up and her hair cut off after her murder. Even as she walks investigators to the basement, describing how Paul carried out the murder of Leslie Mahaffey, she asks, can I ask you a question? Can I have that book or does it have to stay here? My sister wants it. She appears annoyed when she's told everything in the home has to remain where it is. On June 28th, Carla's trial and plea agreement is entered at the law courts and the process begins. She will be prompted to describe all of the events as well as undergo several mental health examinations. She has managed to secure a deal before anyone even knows of the videotapes showing her guilt and direct involvement in all three murders. On July 5th, Justice Francis Kovacs orders delay on publication of most information from Carla Homolka's trial. On July 6th of 1993, Carla pleads guilty to two counts of the lesser charge of manslaughter in the Ontario Court of Justice. 
she will be instructed to serve only 12 years, five for each of the Mahaffey and French murders, as well as a tagged two years for her sister Tammy's death. The details of her statement of facts are under a publication ban by Judge Kovacs to protect the case against Paul Bernardo. If there is any belief that her statements created an unfair trial or unfair conditions for Paul, it could jeopardize his conviction. But the media is very discouraged. The photo and letter Paul and Carla placed in Tammy's casket is discovered in July when Tammy is exhumed for forensic tests. Dr. David McAuliffe, a forensic pathologist in the Toronto's coroner's office, would examine her remains to determine if the manner of death shows similarities to the Leslie and Kristen murders. Carla's parents would instruct the police not to place the photo or the letter back in after their tests were conducted. On October 6th of 1993, while serving her sentence, Carla writes to her lawyer, George Walker. She is now aware of the videotapes most likely, and suddenly her memory is refreshed. Aware that she invalidates the plea agreement if she's found responsible for causing the death of any victims, she informs her lawyer that she now remembers an assault that she blocked out. She informs him of the Jane Doe her and Paul assaulted six weeks after their wedding. Although the victim was freed, Carla knows she called 911 when she lost consciousness and then called again to cancel the request. Carla is now nervous her plea deal will be nullified. She asks her lawyer to take care of it. And in early December, she's visited by police on an unrelated matter and she tells them of the recent recollection. She discloses her calls to 911. By February 2nd of 1994, police interview Homolka to gain her statement on the details of the Jane Doe assault. February through March of 1994, Carla is interviewed for the hearing where she will testify against Paul Bernardo. She's in those meetings during a five-week period where she becomes well-versed in what she will say and how she will respond in court. It's on February 25th that her request for divorce from Paul is granted. On March 30th, 1994, the preliminary hearing is canceled for this date because the Attorney General prefers indictment against Paul for the two murder charges. And in May, he adds preferred indictments against Paul for the Scarborough rapes, the manslaughter of Tammy Homolka as well as the Jane Doe charges and those involving the other victim. On May 4th, the trial of the murder and related charges begins at the Ontario Court of Justice and Associate Chief Justice Lesage presides. At the end of the month, Defense Counsel begins cross-examination of Carla at the Prison for Women in Kingston, Ontario and continues to revisit her during June and July of 1994. Nine charges in total and Paul pleads not guilty to all of them. By September 12th, Ken Murray quits as Paul's lawyer. He'd planned on using the tapes on Carla during the preliminary hearing so that he could gather testimony that was usable during Paul's trial. Now that her preliminary was cancelled, Paul wanted to change tactics and claim that he never met Leslie or Kristen and that he had nothing to do with their deaths. He was pressuring his lawyer to destroy the tapes so he could present that defense. 
Mr. Murray decided to leave his client and John Rosen took over the defense. When he's granted an application to withdraw from the case and submits the videotapes to John Rosen, the video evidence is finally turned over to the Crown prosecutors and they see it on September 22nd of 1994. That late September into early October, the videotapes are reviewed and the assaults are seen on video. It's now clear Carla was a willing participant in many of the assaults and less of a victim as she had presented. Chief Justice Lesage calls for jury selection to commence on May 1st, 1995. And on November 7th, John Rosen requests that a trial be held outside of St. Catharines because of the intense media coverage. A few days later, Justice Lesage agrees. By February 8th of that year, Carla's lawyer is informed that his client could possibly be facing charges in relation to the recalled Jane Doe assault that she brought forward. A few weeks later, police show her the applicable videotape and collect another statement from her. Nearly a month later, rather than moving forward with the charges, it's determined that it's not in the public interest to lay charges for the offenses committed against Jane Doe. Carla's plea deal remains intact. The jury is selected for Paul's trial during that May from a pool of a thousand people. And by May 18th, his trial is underway. In Prosecutor Ray Houlihan's opening statement, he describes Paul as a sexual sadist and puts forward the idea that Carla was beaten and battered and continuously blackmailed. Paul was the one who killed the victims. By the end of May, the tapes are allowed to play in court, although only the sound is played for the public gallery, including the media. Shortly after, it's reported that Carla's mother begins to have psychological breakdowns almost annually as Thanksgiving and Christmas seasons approach. She would sometimes be hospitalized for months at a time. In turn, by that March, Jane Doe decides against pursuing charges to charge Carla with sexual assault. Her mental state is deteriorating and she wants to maintain her privacy. Another lucky break for Carla. This brings up issues for her plea deal, but they're skirted under the argument that Carla didn't disclose the assaults against her young friend because she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder amnesia. Her lawyer worries this could back up on their case if she's considered ineffective as a witness against Paul at trial. Between June 19th and July 14th of 1995, Carla is set to begin her testimony against Paul in court. Shortly before, she writes to her friend, Mary Luton, whom she had worked with at the Martindale Animal Clinic in St. Catharines. She writes, Dear Wendy, I'm letting my bangs grow. After all, I want to look my absolute best when I go to court and see Paul. I want him to drool when he sees me. Although Carla's close friend, Kathy Ford from high school testified, she was no longer able to continue her friendship with Carla because her letters from prison showed no remorse. Carla's peer, Wendy, from the Martindale Clinic, was able to extend more sympathy for Carla on the witness stand, commenting, considering she too knew the Jane Doe that Carla seduced into coming to her home twice, and both times drugging and assaulting her with Paul on videotape. Wendy had known Carla, 
since only October of 1993, but had seen early on that Paul was abusing her. She testified that she saw bruising on Carla all the time on her wrists, neck, hands, and even on her ears. Carla would make unbelievable excuses about the bruising, saying that her dog Buddy played too rough with her and knocked her around sometimes. When Wendy noticed that Carla was beginning to look and appear more frail, she began encouraging her to leave Paul. She told the courts that at one time, Carla had a hole in her leg that appeared to be almost a quarter of an inch deep. Retelling the details of Carla's injuries brought Wendy to tears. She told the court that finally on January 4th, after seeing Carla with two black eyes in 1993 and having contacted local police and a woman's shelter and feeling nothing would happen, she decided to contact Carla's mother and encourage her to convince Carla to seek medical help. She told her that Paul was abusing Carla, but nothing happened. Wendy decided to involve another male friend to contact her and stress the seriousness of the situation. And the next day, she noticed that Mrs. Omoka arrived to take Carla out for lunch, but was heartbroken when Carla returned shortly after. Carla continued on to explain that she had been in a car accident and that Paul had never hurt her. She was relieved when Carla eventually agreed to seek medical attention for her injuries. Wendy told the courts that she remained supportive of Carla and kept contact. She said that Carla had asked her if she could get some clients to write letters of support for her to provide to the courts. But Wendy didn't feel comfortable approaching the clinic's patrons on her behalf. Yet, Wendy did say she was more than happy to be helpful and supportive as she was witness to the serious danger Carla was in while she was with Paul. Letters exchanged between them demonstrated some of Carla's perception on the events, writing the people that hate her don't understand the real story and that she was not a bad person. She was a battered woman who had to stay submissive as Paul strangled the two victims. She puts to Carla in cross-examination that she participated and is even seen beating Kristen with a mallet while she was being strangled. She denies the assertion. On August 4th of 1995, the Crown rests its case. The trial has been three months and seen 86 witnesses. The following day, the defense has Bernardo on the stand. He admits to kidnapping and raping the victims, saying he has an out-of-control sex life. However, he claims he was not even in the room when they perished, putting all of the fault for that on Carla. The defense would close, agreeing that Paul is guilty of kidnapping, rape, and confinement. However, suggests that the Crown did not prove their case in the murders, pointing out Carla is not a reliable witness, even taking one step further and pointing out that Paul had never been involved in any murders until he met Carla. The deaths were accidental and Carla was the killer. On September 1st of 1995, Paul Bernardo is found guilty of all nine charges. He's found guilty of the first degree murder of French and Mahaffey. And on September 15th, he's sentenced to life in prison. He will not be eligible for parole for 25 years. The courts then designate Paul Bernardo as a dangerous offender. 
This makes the possibility of parole in the future almost impossible. Paul Bernardo appeals the conviction and is granted a public defender. The main objection raised is in regards to the testimony of Carla and the legal use of her witness statements. Two jury members wholeheartedly believe that Carla was a battered wife and a victim of Paul Bernardo. They send her family letters of support after the trial. Faced with protests and petitions in late 1995, the Ontario government ordered an inquiry into Carla Homolka's plea bargain arrangement with the Crown. Retired Ontario judge Patrick Galligan, whose official ruling deemed the plea bargain both necessary and proper, embraces the if-only theory in the Galligan report, his inquiry into the Homolka deal. We all know that had the videotapes been available to the authorities on May 14th of 1993, the Crown would never have made this resolution agreement with Carla Homolka. And if only that were true, but that wasn't the case, according to the people who hammered out the deal. Michael Code said so at the time. In May of 1995, Michael Code wrote a memo in which he says the videotapes would have made little difference to the outcome. Homolka cooperated with the police, telling them about the existence of the videos and describing their contents. Had they been found earlier, wrote Code, instead of 12 years, the sentence might have been 14 or 15 years. In April of 1996, the Ontario court rules that the videotapes used to convict Paul Bernardo must be destroyed when their legal use is no longer necessary. Now that the trial has concluded, the tape should be destroyed. That July, the inquiry into the Bernardo investigation is finally completed. It highlights mistakes made by the police during the investigation, as well as departments that were not willing to share information due to petty rivalry preventing them from working together to identify Paul Bernardo in a timely fashion. Another important point is the delay in processing the DNA samples that Paul provided in the earlier part of the investigation. In January of 1997, Paul's defense attorney is charged on two counts for his error in not turning over the videotapes of Paul and Carla's crimes when he first had possession of them. The charges are for obstruction of justice and for possessing child pornography. By the following June, he is acquitted of the charges. That summer, Carla is transferred to the Joliet Institution in Quebec, when the Kingston Prison for Women is closed. The prison is sometimes called Club Fed for its less restrictive rules. In Joliet, Homolka begins a sexual affair with Linda Verano, a transgender man who was serving time for a series of armed robberies. Verano was not an avid reader and didn't watch the news, so she was not in the loop about the notorious Carla Homolka in the beginning. Carla encouraged Linda to complete her studies and had a three-year relationship with her. It was reported that Linda fessed up to a crime not connected with her in order to stay with Carla in prison. Linda was set to have reassignment surgery and Carla confided in her psychiatrist 
that she felt it was not a homosexual relationship as Linda identified as a man. Dr. Robin Menzies agreed and felt the relationship was not that unusual. Yet, he did note that Carla hid the relationship from her family and other doctors she interacted with. However, Linda found the sexual aspect of their relationship somewhat unusual, claiming that Carla liked to be tied up and play a game that she felt was a simulation of rape. When she writes love letters back and forth with Linda in prison, she uses similar baby talk and airhead type short sentences as she did when she wrote love letters to Paul. Yet, when corresponding with author and journalist Stephen Williams, she's well-versed with a high capacity of complex ideas and has exceptional comprehension and communication skills. She seems to adapt to fit her audience, almost giving away her manipulative personality. This comes as no surprise knowing that people that were close with Carla or even just associates had observed her ability to adapt her personality quite drastically depending on the situation. In March of 2000, Paul's request for a new trial is refused by the Ontario Court of Appeal. It is then elevated to the Supreme Court of Canada, where in September of that year, his leave to appeal is denied. October 9th of 2000, Carla is happy at the Joliet prison, but Corrections Canada want her to go for a psychiatric examination and move her to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Her lawyers try to argue that it will be too dangerous for Carla to be moved to the maximum security prison, but they fail to convince the courts. Her move is the beginning of the end of her relationship with Linda. The following January, Carla is transferred to a Montreal psychiatrics hospital to undergo more treatment at the St. Anne de Plain Institution, a maximum security prison where she meets Jean-Paul Gerbet, a 38-year-old man from France who was serving a life sentence for strangling his girlfriend, Kathy Carretta, whom he moved to Quebec to be with. He had a serious and violent past, a drinker and was well known as a manipulator, similar to Paul Bernardo. He was charming and devious. Chantal Munir had claimed that Carla exchanged sexualized letters with Gerbet, and another inmate said she had witnessed the pair stripping at a prison fence, fondling each other, and even exchanging underwear. Chantal added, She is still a sick woman. She likes sick men. Carla and Gerbert would leave each other little love letters in common areas where the female and male population would have to use at different times. Carla kept a nude photo of Jean-Paul in her cell, which was discovered during a search. At the same time, Linda had purchased $3,000 in Victoria's Secret undergarments for Carla, believing that they were still in a relationship. So when Carla is finally returned to the Joliet prison, she keeps her distance from Linda and eventually ends the relationship, devastating her. In November of 2001, Carla tells a journalist and author, Stephen Williams, in written correspondence between the two, the more time that passes, the more I'm haunted by everything. I can't even talk about the details of what happened anymore. 
before, it was almost like telling a story where I could take the emotion out of it, but not anymore. Now it's way too real. She denies ever being serious about Linda, claiming she may have had something with her, but it was long over and denied being involved with Jean-Paul. On December 16th of 2004, three years later, the National Parole Board rules that Carla must complete her full sentence, ending on July 5th of 2005. That April of 2005, Michael Bryant says Carla will not be charged in the murder of her sister Tammy when she's released, even though she had written a letter to her parents confessing that she was involved and was on video participating. In fact, she held the cloth of Halthane to her face, which was deemed to be the cause of her death in the final analysis. On May 19th, a new law is passed by the Canadian Senate that requires violent criminals to give DNA samples, and it is inspired by the pending release of Carla. In preparation of Carla's release, reviews of her prison files are heavily reviewed. Dr. Hubert Van Gieseghem, psycho-legal expert and psychologist who assesses Carla's case, claimed her behavior in prison was still far too messy and carried the color of the kind of life she's had with Bernardo. She retained that feeling of all powerfulness and dripping narcissism. All those who knew her or would have to make a report on this woman were struck by this great narcissism. It's possibly true, although many were critical of the doctor's report on Carla. Even Carla complained of his amateur observations. Although she was clearly very insightful and intelligent, she had a skewed view of herself and what she expected of the public. Writing to the author Stephen Williams, people are always going to interpret what I do as bad. They'll pick out one bad thing from a sea of good and I'll be judged on that. So many psychological reports were prepared and presented for different purposes, each one seemingly contorted to fit the need of the report. When reviews were conducted to see if she would qualify for private family visits, she is reported as open and respectful and working on every aspect of her correctional plan while another called upon for submission regarding her application for escorted temporary absences, called her defiant and demeaning, saying she seemingly only works on one aspect of her correctional plan. Finally, on June 2nd, in 2005, in Juliet, Quebec, prosecutors argue in court that when Carla is released, there should be restrictions on her. After two days of arguments, Judge Jean R. Beaulieu agrees that there is a risk involved in releasing Carla. He rules that she should be restricted in some ways, including confiding her address, where she works, and who lives with her. If she will be away from home for two days or more, she needs to give notice three days in advance. She must continue therapy and counseling. She cannot consume drugs or alcohol, and she cannot be around people under the age of 16. He also says any name changes must be submitted to the police, and she cannot be in contact with any violent criminals, and is restricted from contacting Paul Bernardo or any of the victim's families. 
Carla makes a request with the courts that the media be prohibited from revealing details about her life after she is released. Her request is denied prior to her release. And on July 4th, Carla is released from prison and arrangements are made to have her driven out of prison to avoid the media. She's whisked away and hours later appears on television giving an interview on the Canadian broadcasters SRC, a French channel in Montreal. On the program, she admits that she prefers to stay in Quebec as the media coverage there is far less intense. The ever-cunning Carla was wise enough to brush up on her French and request that all legal communication, including government documents and psychological assessments, be in her first language, French. And Carla continues to have her lawyers fight for her privacy. In August of 2005, Carla is discovered in the suburbs of Montreal working at a hardware store. Her employer, Richard Lapointe had apparently offered her the position in the months before her release. Richard claims he had been given a second chance in life and regularly helped people fresh out of prison to get their lives back on track. He contacted Carla's lawyer several times to make his generous offer known to the inmate. Carla begins training as an associate, but shortly after, Richard ends up entangled with the authorities And when he is charged with sexually assaulting his former wife and trespassing on her property, police advise Carla he is no longer a suitable employer to report to and she's implored to search for a job somewhere else. The point is kind of an off guy and he ends up revealing her location to the news. And he also reveals he had made recordings of their conversations. He accuses her of reaching her conditions by contacting someone with a criminal record and coming into contact with children, citing instances such as Carla had a lesbian lover in prison named Stevia Claremont, who was convicted of murder. She had a troubled son and Carla was trying to help him out. He also said Carla would agree to watch his two sons, aged nine and 14 for an hour. He claimed she did not disclose that she was violating her restrictions by being in the company of underage children. He also tells the media that she once told him, Richard, my life will always be a lie. However, many are suspicious of his truthfulness, considering how aggressively he pursued having her to choose him as her first employer out of prison. Although it seems strange, Carla's lawyer had previously told the media that she had received many emails and letters, as well as phone calls from people who wanted to offer her a place to live. They've offered apartments, jobs, and money to my client, all from generous Canadians who wanted to help her with her social rehabilitation. Carla moves on and again disappears. Shortly after, Richard claims he's stabbed in the back by a stranger outside of his home at night. Rona, the company that owned the hardware store, decides to close the location rather than just let go of LaPointe. It helps to avoid all of the media attention on them. And considering it was one of their smaller stores with low sales, it made the most sense in terms of damage control. The Quebec Justice Department ends up ruling that Carla did not breach her conditions and there will be no pending charges against her. On November 30th of 2005, 
the conditions imposed on Carla for being considered a risk to the community by a previous justice member are overturned. The lawyer representing the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French are devastated by the decision. On February 13th, two years later, an anonymous tip reports that Carla has given birth to a baby boy at St. Mary's Hospital in Montreal, only two years after she's released from prison. News circulates a rumor that one nurse refused to administer care to Carla after recognizing who she was. People are split on feeling that it's unprofessional or conversely, understandable that she would be uncomfortable. The hospital releases a statement. Mrs. Homolka was there. She was a pregnant woman and she had a baby and everyone gave her the care she needed. On June 7th of 2007, Paul Bernardo comes to police and Crown attorneys to make statements regarding the Elizabeth Bain disappearance and presumed murder. A judge rules that the media can show the interview on television and online. Notable is his shivering reaction when the name Carla Homolka is mentioned. In the interim, at some point, Carla moves to the Caribbean island of Guadalupe with her husband, Thierry Bordelais, under the name Leanne Bordelais, along with her then three children. Carla will go by several different names herself and in the media, including the Witch of Ontario, Carla Leanne Teal, Leanne Teal Bordelais, and Emily Bordelais. Her husband is the brother of Carla's prison lawyer, Sylvie Bordelais. When her lawyer is contacted to confirm her relationship to Carla's husband, she responds, who's that? I don't know who that is. On June 16th of 2010, concern over Carla being able to apply and be granted a pardon for her crimes is piqued until Minister Vic Toes passes a bill preventing notorious criminals from being able to partake in the application process. Carla will retain a criminal record for the rest of her life as she should. In 2012, after being discovered in Guadalupe by a Canadian journalist named Paula Todd, Homolka returned to Quebec. Paula has decided to seek out Carla after hearing rumors that she had taken up a position, working in some capacity as an educator's assistant with small children. There was never any real evidence of that, but it did, however, provide the public even more reason to detest her and to criticize the deal that allowed her to be out of prison already, leading a relatively normal life. After agreeing to disclose what trail of documents led her to find Carla. It suspected an extended family member of her husband's side had posted a tidbit of information that disclosed where they were. Paula Todd had commented to the National Post that she believed her husband's side of the family was not happy with the marriage and did not support it. Carla agreed to a short discussion and invited her into the average looking suite where she resided. The discussion was tense but Paula did observe that Carla kept a clean and organized home and commented to her that she seemed like a caring and involved mother. Carla made a sarcastic comment back 
about the short amount of time she was able to come to such a conclusion so certainly. Carla knew that people, including the media, all disliked her and she would be in confinement of sorts for the rest of her life. It was clear that Carla did not want to discuss any of her past and made no indication that she struggled with any emotional issues since her release. It's not lost on the journalist that Carla had helped to kill three young people and was now free and raising three of her own. Paula even found it poignant that when one of Carla's young children came to sit on her lap, she had to reassure Carla that the child was safe with her. Carla failed to see the irony in the moment. Many insiders suggested that Carla and her family would stay in Montreal during the summer months and return to Guadalupe in the winter months. Perhaps that's why it had been so hard to nail down her exact location. If people were curious about Carla's ability to mend fences with her family, their doubts would be quashed when her sister Lori's little boy is featured on Carla's online shop, Bebe Desur, modeling her handmade baby gear. When some customers determined that Carla was the one running the online company, she was unable to keep it running. Although some commented it was a shame as her homemade items were well-crafted. In late April of 2016, the media discovers Carla and her husband are residing back in Quebec in a suburb called Chateauguay. And some are planting themselves near the home. Carla comes out yelling at them to get off of her property. Neighbors discover that she's living in their community and begin to comment to the press. One who had no idea she lived next door saying, I feel very sad for her children. Some commented on their disgust having Hamulka around, while others expressed her right to privacy and that she should be left alone to raise her family. Others were demanding she move. The next day, a local reporter is waiting in the driveway of Carla and her husband's home. He is clearly annoyed at the unwanted attention. When asked how he feels about the neighbors being unhappy, knowing that Carla Hamulka is living in their neighborhood, he quips, if they are worried, all they have to do is move, stressing that it's a free country for them to live where they wish. Has anything happened over the past 10 years? So why are they worried? I don't see why they are worried. The Chateauguay mayor, Natalie Simon, tells the media that the attention is unpleasant but there is really no way to know who is buying property in the municipality. And although they're in the spotlight now, something else will come along and the spotlight will move along with it. Until then, she assured the community that mechanisms were in place to ensure the safety of all community members. So was Carla afraid to leave Paul Bernardo or was she fulfilled by her involvement? Psychoanalysts have drawn the connection between Carla and a syndrome known as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome or hybristophilia. It appears that some element of a paraphilic disorder is in play with Carla. She had the proclivity for dark sexual fantasies at a young age. Many teens and young adults do as they experiment and explore sexuality. And of course, even adults do the same. However, when the disorder comes in, it resembles more of an urge than a desire. 
and those urges cross the line of exploring and sexual play when they involve their own suffering or humiliation on themselves or their partner. Often, these disorders can involve repeating and compelling behaviors that are designed to disable or distress and can include non-consenting adults or even children, no matter if it causes harm or potentially even death. At times, objects can be part of the fantasy. We know for Paul this was the case, as reports of his early rapes included him inserting twigs into his victims, and later, a wine bottle seems to be a recurring item used in the assaults, and Carla was also involved. This sounds very much like what observers have reported about both Paul and Carla, but in Carla's case, there is always this angle of victimization and that the suggestion that she was under Paul's control rather than seeking to fulfill her own fantasies. Others take it a step in the other direction, concluding that her participation was consensual and that she most likely includes a hybristophilic tendency where her arousal comes from partners that commit violent and offensive acts. Usually, you hear of this more in terms of people who are not necessarily participating, but feel an attraction to dangerous people's character. You see them in the news, women and men declaring their admiration for serial killers and other brutal criminals for no reason other than the dangerousness of their crimes. Serious crimes as well, like those of Ted Bundy, Richard Ramirez, and even Charles Manson they become classified as prison groupies in the media, and most times it appears to affect females. Even Paul Bernardo has them. One 30-year-old woman from London, Ontario, had sent letters to Paul suggesting that she had plans to marry him. The educated and established woman told her friends that she believed Paul was innocent, that he was a bystander in the murders. And despite the overwhelming evidence, including video recordings that contradicted her claims, she believed that she would prove his innocence and reveal the good man he was underneath. It's later revealed that she was an emotionally fragile but brilliant woman who had recently suffered a bad breakup. Her family felt that she was looking to imprint herself on someone that she perceived as dominant. She had originally contacted Bernardo to gather research for a book, but came to believe that he loved her unconditionally and even had Paul's girl tattooed on her ankle. Carla's obsession with Paul seemed to begin with him fitting a mold that she had created in her mind of the perfect partner. An older, attractive businessman who would be in control and take care of her. As he chagrined her and earned her affection, he began to normalize deviant sexual acts and pull away from her when she didn't fall in line. For most, this would signal a time to end the relationship and move on. But for someone like Carla, stubborn, focused, and determined with the ability to manipulate, this may have presented as more of an excitement or game to keep his attention. When he turned the sun away from her, it made it that much more rewarding when he turned it back on. That's a powerful synergy. And considering Carla was still quite young and in the early stages of their relationship, I could see this being very effective. When Paul implied that he may reconsider the marriage, 
Carla delivered the young Jane Doe that she befriended through working at the veterinary clinic to bring him back in, no doubt to prove her worthiness. It would keep him entangled with her, and that was the goal beyond anything in her life. She even called the girl a wedding gift. She used the same method for assaulting the girl that she had used on her sister and knew how easily that had gone wrong. Her telling Paul instructing her to bring the girl to their home is not believable. He didn't know of her and Carla was the one pulling out all the stops to desperately keep Paul's attention at the time. She tried to deliver a friend of Jane's to Paul closer to the end of the relationship. And when that girl refused to have sex with Paul, he blamed Carla and beat her many times. He was unable to comprehend how he couldn't get what he wanted. And she was desperately trying to satiate his unrelenting demands for a new girl. Yet, seemingly when the tapes were disclosed, the tides turned with the public's ability to believe Carla was a victim. When details of the video recordings began to circulate, indicating that Carla was participating in the assaults, even the fatal assault on her sister, the perception became more of Carla as a manipulative schemer that fooled prosecutors into what they called a deal with the devil, skirting the life sentence and dangerous offender designation that Paul was given. It looked as though she tricked investigators by coming forward first and giving all of the details before Paul was even arrested and that gave her a golden ticket and a token prison sentence. Carla, while on the witness stand, well versed in all aspects of battered wife syndrome, was touted as a victim in the circumstances, but was observed to be rather indifferent, haughty, and irritable by the National Post. She came off as suspect because on one hand, she was the victim of an abuser that had been breaking her down and then priming her back up as a loyal aide in his criminal endeavors. Yet under high stress, near pummeling on the stand, she was creating the impression that she was still the bossy girl she had been long before she met Paul Bernardo. She needed control and responded with authority. She appeared at times strategic, self-possessed, and quite clever. It was confusing when she held up against Paul's testimony. He was exactly as one would suspect, a guy with no self-awareness that believes he is smarter and quicker than everyone else. Yet clearly his manipulations were straight out of an old self-help and motivational speaker doctrine. All fizz, no gin where Carla was more slippery. And once the public was aware that she had broken the agreement of her plea deal and became aware that the tapes made her testimony unnecessary to prosecute Paul Bernardo, the belief was that she should be sitting right next to him at the defense table. In fact, even the Judicial Inquiry Justice Patrick Galligan was unable to decide if Carla's participation was voluntary. The volumes of legal and psychiatric evidence led in a spider web of convoluted conclusions. He claimed even the jury struggled with that during deliberations. No doctors or psychiatrists could conclude exactly where her culpability lied. Some tagged her as a cold and distant narcissist who's a dangerous sexual predator, while others classified her as a battered wife with post-traumatic stress disorder. 
the argument keeps running in a cycle back to Carla, just not being believable as a remorseful victim in this scenario. Carla continued to be a diagnostic mystery that presented very well, but underneath was morally vacuous and the diagnostic community couldn't nail down exactly why. In reviewing Carla's statements and her walk through the crime scenes in her home, when she knows that she's about to be charged and convicted of these violent crimes, and worse, knows that it's not yet been discovered that she's involved in her sister's death. She's focused only in terms of how things affect herself with no insight or empathy for the assaults. She's fussing over damaged furniture, missing perfume samples, and still holding a grudge about Paul using the precious wedding crystal to serve alcohol to Leslie Mahaffey. The wiring in her is just not connected right. Dr. Fred Berlin, an authority on criminal behavior, told the CBC News show The Fifth Estate that he rejected the battered wife syndrome defense. He argued the crimes Carla committed were not about her suffering, but rather about the victims that she hurt, who had been no threat to her. Even the Crown prosecutor felt that the duress she reported was basically proportionate only to what she would admit responsibility for. Yet, Dr. Andrew Malcolm suggested that Carla was under Paul's control and that he had developed that control from the beginning of their relationship. She was young and simple and felt a sense of worthiness when her family and school friends expressed how impressive the couple was, especially what a great catch Paul was. Carla may have been acting out of fear of abuse or even death, as she would claim. However, at the time of her sister's assault, the couple was not married and they were independent. They were merely engaged and Carla not only still lived at home, but her parents were home during the assault. There's no safer condition to back out of the plan than that. Was his control over her that powerful? Only weeks later, she participates in a recorded reenactment to seduce Paul as she plays the part of her sister Tammy in a video later labeled the fireside chat. He berates her again, saying she better act into it and not fuck up like she did with Tammy, ruining his video. They move into Tammy's bedroom, which is left as it was before her death, stuffed animals and all. Carla wears her clothing and speaks in her sister's voice. She has a brown paper bag that holds three pairs of Tammy's underwear. The couple rub their faces on them. And Paul stares at Tammy's graduation photo during most of the recording. He even addresses Carla as Tammy. And her reaction is vapid and playing along at ease in the moment. The ugly fact is, during the recording of the actual assault against Tammy, Carla does participate. Paul directs her to perform sexual acts, and she obliges. However, there again is the disconnect in Carla's insight during the assault. She doesn't appear to indicate at all that she's struggling with watching or participating in the rape of her younger sister. Her negative reaction and disgust is only registered when she complains her sister is menstruating and that she finds things that she's directed to do unpleasant. When she says it's gross to Paul, he pauses the recording and when it resumes, she's obliging again and submissive, 
but she comments several times that he needs to hurry up and seems to be rushing him early on to get things over with. She encourages him to wear a condom, but puts up little resistance to his refusals. She's concerned about being caught, not about the abuse stopping out of empathy for her sister. Paul had first suggested using simple sleeping pills to knock out Tammy, but Carla took a dangerous turn by securing the Halcyon. She claimed it was because she feared her sister would wake up during the assault. Carla was more than aware of the fact that in using any anesthetic, administering after a person has consumed food or beverages will contradict the drugs. The consequences will most likely be death. Tammy vomiting and inhaling was a predictable event. Carla would have been well aware of that. Never mind the obvious fact that the drug is to be administered by vaporizer, not a cloth. In fact, after Tammy's remains were reviewed for a second forensic report after Carla's plea deal was already completed, his notes indicated that she was most likely smothered by the cloth. In direct contradiction to Carla's claims that she only hovered the cloth over her face in recorded statements. The video evidence refuted this totally when she could be seen holding the cloth directly onto Tammy's mouth. I don't want to labor the point, but if you consider in the mind of Carla, where do you think her thoughts are going to when the assault is nearing its conclusion and Carla knows that she will now have to live in the home with Paul and her parents and her younger sibling, just waiting for them to have any indication the two of them assaulted Tammy after drugging her. Was it an accident that she left the cloth on Tammy's face and then lied about touching her face with the cloth to investigators? She makes a point of not only telling but showing in her statement that she hovered the cloth over Tammy's mouth so she would inhale the vapor, but the autopsy indicated she was smothered. The pooling of the anesthetic proved that there was excessive liquid introduced into Tammy's system. Carla's plea included the clause that would be scrapped if later any evidence were to come to light that she was directly responsible for the death of any of the victims, taking the breath of any of the girls. So in her statements, she seemed to be astutely aware of that fact. Years into her sentence, she would at first write that she feels responsible for Tammy's death, but would eventually change her mind and only say that she bears some responsibility. When quizzed about the change in accountability, she coldly responds, feelings change, facts don't. Later in the interview, held immediately after her release with the Francophone branch of the Canadian National Public Broadcaster, the CBC, she told of feeling remorse and crying often. She said she had done horrible things, but when pressed further to describe any insight into her involvement, she responds, well, I didn't initiate the crimes I followed. Yes, I did what I did, but... There are even bigger concerns with her narrative. While Paul was unequivocally a dangerous and violent sexual sadist whose treatment of his victims was inhumane, many point to the fact that until he was entangled with Carla, he had never murdered his victims. It's likely that Paul would have continued to escalate in his crimes as time went on, 
many do, and it's not out of the ordinary. However, when you step back, it's notable that he was the one acting out of desire to keep a victim for as long as possible. He coveted the brutal sex acts, no doubt, but he had always spoke of his desire to retain a sex slave. His fantasy was never to extinguish them. His fantasy was to keep them. He envisioned the dream of a mansion or sometimes a farm where he would keep women forever there at his disposal. Like many sexual sadists, his wish was to keep and control his victims as long as he could. It falls in line with his reputation as a pack rat. He kept everything. It was a dangerous habit. He kept the receipt for the concrete mix that he purchased to encase Leslie's remains, which was one of the clues that led back to him. He kept items from his victims during the Scarborough rapes, and of course, anything he could of Tammy's after she perished. That's why the video recordings were such a personal obsession for him during the crimes. He wanted a collection of videotapes so he could relive the experiences over and over. It appeared his concern was focused on getting the best recording possible, not the assault itself that kept his engagement. In fact, he often had problems keeping his attention focused enough to perform the assault while fussing over the recording. He was director, then actor, in that order. Risky behavior, considering these recordings would undoubtedly be the evidence that would nail his coffin. There is no doubt that he was diligent to avoid detection and prevent being discovered. He was focused on having Carla clean everything that the victims touched in the home and even insist on Carla removing Kristen's hair and cleansing her body in case carpet fibers, body fluids, or anything in the environment of the crime were to lead back to them. He spoke of DNA and its ability to direct towards the suspect. He even knew they had his DNA in multiple forms since back in the Scarborough days. He was cautious, but Carla was the quiet force that pushed Bernardo to see there was no other option than murder. While Paul was the one with the control, Carla was the one with the coercion, always guiding his thoughts to murder. She spells it out in her statements and on the witness stand in Paul's trial very clearly. She tells him they have to keep commitments with the family to avoid suspicion and to secure their alibis. And she's consumed with worry after Kristen French is kept for many days that when she has to return to work, she may escape. It was too much worry and fear that it would lead to getting caught. Her cold and unemotional reasoning seems almost robotic as she spells out the impossibility of any other options. Only after those statements does she qualify that that reasoning was of how scared she was of Paul, almost like an afterthought. It's clear from her recall that she was not willing to see any other solution rather than she was seeking any other way of resolving the situation. In fact, before Kristen was murdered, Paul had left once again to pick up their meal, an opportunity to let the girl free that she didn't take. I don't think it really matters who in fact murdered the victims. 
Paul and Carla were both implicit in their death. Clearly, Carla suffered and she was vulnerable to Paul's abuse and control. It isn't right to minimize the real effects of coercive control and the very real threat of violence, leaving a partner unable to make any decisions to act or reason outside of just staying alive. People can do unthinkable things when they're torn down and shredded apart, almost unrecognizable to themselves. I would never doubt that. What I do doubt is that Carla is any less responsible or accountable for the death of the three murdered women, including her own sister. She shows no honest remorse and in fact seemingly portrays indignance. She can posture and act offended by the media pursuing her and people's constant concerns about her being in their communities. People in her nice suburb were feeling terrorized when they discovered Carla had accompanied several school children on an outing as a volunteer parent and once brought her family dog to visit her child's classroom and engaged with the students there. For all of the families and friends who share heartfelt comments and memories of the beloved victims, Tammy Homolka, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French, Carla can never escape one simple truth. She will never be able to truly divorce herself from the historical connection between her and Paul Bernardo, a graying old man that uses Nutella to dye his hair in prison that he will only leave when his spirit is in hell. She can do her best to be a loving wife and mother but there will be no escaping the repeated horror of the revelations as each one of them and generations after are recognized as the family of Carla Homolka, Paul Bernardo's wife. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Writing About Crime. 